Are you on the hunt for a new graduate speech pathology position in 2023? Are you looking for a supportive new grad role with supervision, professional development opportunities and admin support? And are you looking for a workplace with regular social experiences and above award remuneration? If you have answered yes to all of the above, then check out Communicate Speech Pathology's new graduate connection program in 2023. Applications are now open. So email your interest to Carla Burns at carla at communicatespeech.com.au. You're listening to another episode of Diary of a New Grad Speechy. We are the go-to podcast for students and new grad speechies who know a little about a lot, giving you our unprofessional but professional advice that you didn't know you needed. Hi everyone and welcome to Diary of a New Grad Speechy. I'm Ash. And I'm Cass. So... This is our second last episode for the season, which is so crazy. We did have a little bit of a break that we mentioned in the previous episode because of life being so crazy, but we are almost at the end of the season, which is exciting, but sometimes we feel like it's not long enough. I know. I feel like the minute we decide to end a season, there's always like new topics that come up and more things that we really want to talk about. So I think we'll probably just get better at sort of sussing out how many episodes we want to do. Yeah. Or someone messages us on Instagram with a recommendation and we think, oh my God, that's such a good idea. But yeah, we'll get better at it. 10 episodes sometimes doesn't feel long enough. Today we are going to be talking about parental grief and we did touch on this briefly on the updated episode that we did, What We Wish We Knew, part two. So we are going to delve deeper into this topic because I think it is something that is super important and as a new grad and even an experienced speech pathologist, it is really good to be aware of because we deal with parents who are going through grief pretty much every day. So it is really good to help your practice and also for parent management. Yeah, I definitely agree, Ash. And I think obviously the more experience you have as a speech pathologist, the easier these conversations might be, but I think every parent is also so different. So I think having an understanding of the parental grief cycle is really important to have in your practice in the back of your mind. Totally. But before we get into the episode, Cass, I want to chat about something that I've been watching on TikTok, which is just wild to me. Okay, tell me. I was scrolling on the For You page and if anyone doesn't have TikTok, it's just like a big discovery page where everyone who has a public profile, you can like see their videos and there's an algorithm and whatever. This lady who does TikToks, she, her stutter is the most severe stutter that I've ever seen ever. It's really bad. And obviously she's gained like a lot of followers from it and everyone's really lovely giving her support and heaps of strategies and all of that. Someone wrote a comment saying, try talking into a mirror because she wants to go into like a drive-thru, but she can't order because then she gets really anxious ordering and there's like that pressure. So then she's literally just blocking so much that she can't get anything out. So now she orders while looking at herself in the mirror and she can literally get through the whole order without 
or with just a few like stuttering moments. Oh my goodness. I feel like I've seen this video. Yeah. She's blonde and she's got an English accent. Yeah. 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 I feel like I've seen it, but I didn't like watch it for long enough and go through the comments and do all of that stuff. So I didn't really think of anything of it. Like I've never heard of that before. Talking into the mirror. Never. I wonder if obviously it would reduce the pressure of speaking into the speaker box or whatever, but I don't know if that's actually like an evidence-based strategy. I don't know either. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. But her stutter was so severe and then with her video and she was just, yeah, talking into the mirror and then she could get through her whole order. That's amazing. Yeah. So I saw that. I did start crying because I was like, that's so nice. But then I also thought, what's the evidence behind that? (laughs) You're like, that's so nice. I don't know if I'm going to recommend this, but I mean, if it works for her, it works, right? Yeah, that's so true. So yeah, if anyone who's listening kind of knows a little bit more behind that, we definitely haven't done any research about it. I just thought I would touch a touch on it because I remembered it while we started recording it. But if anyone knows, please let us um, no, or send us like the journal article behind it. That would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know on the topic of TikTok, I go through phases with TikTok. I will watch it over and over and over. And when I do, I forward you about 10 videos in a row. <laughs> but I also have times where I'm like completely off it. Something I've seen recently and it keeps popping up on my For You page, I think, because I've, you know, stayed on that video for a long time is this lady. Um, that is I think probably our age maybe a little bit younger than us who Mm -hmm. has sucked her thumb her whole life oh have you seen her and she has got a massive overbite and her tongue is like constantly through her teeth the whole time I think you sent it to me (laughs) I mean if that's what she wants to do that's fine but I've never seen something that significant it was literally like a lizard yeah yeah, like she, takes, she had like a huge open bite. Yeah, and if no one knows what we're talking about, if you just quickly pause this episode and Google open bite, you'll see the way that dentition, someone's dentition is when they suck their thumb or they always have a dummy in their mouth or something. This is why sucking a thumb or dummy is really, um, I would say harmful because it does, it changes the structure of your face, but hers is so crazy. So significant. Mm. She's literally gotten pretty famous off it, I would say, but yeah, maybe not for the right reasons. I wonder how her production would be. No, it's out It's out the whole time. Oh, is it fully out? Yeah, her tongue's always out. I'm going to see if I can find the video. Okay. Oh, my phone's recording. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't use, I can't use my phone. Oh, God, that's hilarious. Oh, if um, I find it, I'll put it on our Instagram stories. Yeah. For anyone who is listening to that, Cassie and I have decided to try and do some like recordings to put on Instagram, but the recordings that are from our laptop are not good. So we thought we'd start recording with our phones and then we could put it together. So yeah. (laughs) So how it goes. Anyway, I'm sure you'll see it on Instagram if they turn out fine, but if not, you'll know. (laughs) Okay, well, let's get into the episode, which we think is a really tough one that most clinicians experience with the majority of their clients, parents, and that is, as I mentioned before, parental grief. And more specifically, we're going to be talking about parental grief for children with disabilities. 
we're going to be talking about each stage of the cycle in a little bit more detail. But before we get into it, though, we want to put out there that we obviously are not psychologists and don't specifically treat parents going through this grief cycle. This is just our knowledge on the topic and a few pointers on what we can do as speech pathologists to support a parent through this difficult time in their life. Yeah. Nicely said, Cass. We aren't here to talk about how we're going to treat a parent to get over it. It's just yeah, how we can support them so then they can support their child going through the therapy. But have you ever been in a session with a parent who are just, they're physically there in the session, but mentally they're somewhere else? Mm, very regularly. Or you've spoken with a parent and they immediately jump to see if their child will be okay as an adult or if they're going to have a job. Will they Mm. get married, be able to work? Yeah. Or you seem like sometimes no matter what you tell a parent, you could tell them something, the same thing five times, but it just doesn't sink in. And you can do so much explaining, but they just don't get it. Yeah, and then they come to the session the next week with the same questions. Yeah, or the same question but it's worded differently. Mm. (laughs) Mm. Well, if you've answered yes, then most likely some of your client's parents are dealing with grief. And let us tell you, with some experience, parents who are going through the grief cycle can be very, very challenging, which is not their fault at all. Grief is a very difficult and complex process that everyone goes through, but especially when these parents are needing to go to various appointments each week and are constantly worried and confronted with their child's development for the future, this can just be an extra layer of complexity that we don't really understand. And I think sometimes too, along with not really understanding it or along with it, yes, not really being our job. I think it happens a lot more than what people talk about. I think because we are working with children with such complex disabilities at times, I mean, even it doesn't always have to be complex. It can just be really mild, I guess, for us. But to that parent, that's a really big curve that they did not expect for their child's development. So I think it's important to recognize that even though it's not a super complex disability, it's still significant to that family no matter what. Yeah, definitely. And some of my previous clients have had a specialist appointment literally most days of the week, which if you tally that up, that's a huge amount of hours each year that parents are having to talk about their child's difficulties. Totally. I lately have gotten a little bit, not sorry for the kids and and their families. Sorry is not the right word, but I almost feel a little bit of grief for them because I think about when I was a child and, you know, I had two siblings growing up. So every afternoon we were at like, you know, I would go to dancing and then we dropped my brother and sister off at soccer. And there'd always be like a sport that we were all going to a couple of days of the week. And then the days that we weren't at that sport, we'd be playing in the backyard together or we'd be, you know, swimming in the swimming pool or whatever it was that we were doing. And so I think about that childhood that I had with my siblings. And then I think about these little ones who are coming to therapy twice a week, sometimes three times a week, and their siblings are also going. Mm. And I just feel like so sad for them that that's their experience of childhood. Yeah, definitely. It's like they don't have a chance to be a child. Yeah. Even though we make therapy fun and it's um, games and all of the things, 
it's not playing in the backyard with their siblings and getting dirty and eating mud and doing all that stuff. Yeah, it's so different. Now, as I we said before, like it's not our jobs as speech pathologists to support parents through this grief, but we thought um, we would put out this episode because it's really important to be aware of what's going on for these parents and to know what we can do during this process. It was a really big learning curve for me because I honestly thought that some parents just hated me. It can seem like that. Yeah. But it wasn't until I listened to this child psychologist give a little presentation about the grief cycle that it literally made sense to me why some parents are, for lack of a better word, just really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that iceberg analogy. Like you always see what's on top, but you don't really know what's going on underneath. Yeah. I gave this explanation in the What We Wish We Knew episode. And I explained a really important aspect to the parental grief that the psychologist said. So there are many different reasons why parents may experience grief, but parental grief in the context of a child with a disability is the most is that most parents, when they learn they are having a child, when they're pregnant, they begin to dream about what their life will be like. And more specifically, you know, sharing their passions, whether that be sports, arts, playing an instrument going to birthday parties, um, going on holidays, having fun, weddings, weekends away. However, when a parent learns that their child has a disability, the loss of the dream triggers many strong emotions and these emotions are similar to any of life's losses and so that could be like a death, a marriage breakup those types of things and this will require the parent to go through the five stages of grief which is what we're talking about today that's a really nice succinct way to put it I think relating it back to some of those other losses that we all go through at some stage in our life many of us might experience that more than once and so I think relating it back to something like that really does hit home for how significant hearing that news can be as a parent And it makes you realize why parents immediately jump to, are they ever going to have a girlfriend? Like, why are you even thinking about that? Mm. (laughs) Are they going to get married? Are they going to have a job? Like this little one's two. two. I was going to say this little one's two o'clock. This little one is two. Then they're not going to be working for a long time. I don't understand why you're thinking about that. But when that psychologist said that, I thought, oh, it makes sense because they had dreamt the life that they thought they were going to have and then learning that their child has a disability, that life is no longer what they may think is possible. Yeah. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So to get into the grief cycle, as we are obviously on a podcast, we can't draw this up so you can see what it looks like. But imagine a circle that has two ends. Yeah, I can see you're getting confused here. (laughs) You mean like a roundabout? So – so like say, it's off circle. say you've got, it's a road, but it's only, it's a roundabout, but it's only got two roads. Like an entrance and an exit. Yeah. So you're coming into the entrance and then you're going to go around and do the loop and then yeah. you're going to come back to where you kind of came on, but then you're going to go through again and then out, out of the roundabout. Okay. I'm confused. Okay, if you're confused. (laughs) Okay, say there's a circle 
But then on the left side, there's a line from the circle going out and from the right side, there's a line going out. Okay, so one's at the top, one's at the bottom. Yep, or one's on the left, one's on the right. Okay, perfect. Yep. Yep, tell me more. (laughs) So the left end, as you're coming into the cycle, that is the first stage and then you're going to do that big loop and that's all the stages in there and then the right line coming out of the circle is the final stage. So it means you're out of the grief cycle. So the grief cycle kind of does like a big loop and then, yeah. That makes sense. Mm. We'll put a photo on our Instagram. Yeah, let's put a photo on Instagram and this is probably going to confuse people so we'll definitely do that. But anyway, just think of a big circle because it's a loop. Okay. So stage one, Cass. Stage one in the cycle is denial. Mm. We've all probably experienced denial at some stage in our lives. This is the most difficult stage for any family and child with special needs. Early intervention is obviously critical for these little ones. And if a parent is kind of stuck in that denial stage and unable to believe or accept that they have a child who requires extra support, this crucial time of early intervention and, you know, all of those early years can unfortunately be lost. Unfortunately, it's really important to remember that some parents might never really get out of this stage. And I've definitely had parents before, you know, who are coming in with like their 15-year-old child who are experiencing still in that sort of denial phase. Mm -hmm. So what this can look like is a parent who, and I'm going to use a not very nice word, blames or sort of puts that excuse onto others or needs sort of that reason to explain their child's needs and they can't really see what others might see. So for example, if you're saying, oh, um, you know, I really think that your child is meeting or is showing some kind of characteristics of having ASD, um, I think you should go and see a pediatrician. What that might seem like as a parent, um, they'll be like, no, they don't. They they definitely don't. Like what, what would make you think that? Um, or on the other hand, when they receive that diagnosis of ASD, they might be coming to you because the pediatrician has recommended it. And then that parent might be like, oh, you know, the pediatrician has just totally made up this diagnosis. I really don't think that they've got ASD. Um, and sort of just like finding a lot of other excuses for maybe, um, you know, something like that kind of diagnosis. So it's always like, there seems like another excuse or another reason rather than actually sort of like accepting what's right in front of them. Is that what you would say? Yeah, 100%. Or they'll blame external factors for the difficulties. I've had someone list the characteristics of autism and then they've said to me, and apparently from the PED, that means autism. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you're obviously in the denial stage because unfortunately that is autism and your child does have difficulties, but it's okay. We'll step through it. The blaming's really hard. And I think Mm -hmm. that leads it into stage two. So come the denial and the blame, stage two is anger. And this is definitely self-explanatory, but what can happen in this stage is that parents can really alienate themselves from their support networks, such as family and friends and even therapy supports, while they try to navigate this period of their life. And this stage can be really tricky because clients may cancel sessions. They may blame it on your experience and say that they need someone more experienced, which as a new graduate, it happens a lot. 
I've just taken over from a client who wasn't happy because apparently the therapist wasn't experienced enough, which was hard. I find when a parent is in this phase and if they haven't cancelled your sessions, which is a big positive, really encouraging the support group and finding ways for them to connect can really help. I've definitely had clients who not necessarily have been like showing signs of anger towards me, but they will cancel sessions a lot or they might just drop their child off and not come into the therapy room. Um, you know, you, you recommend them go to another service, say like OT support, or you might recommend something like psychology to work on the child's goals. And then often these parents will be like, oh, well, they don't need to go there. You know, why do they need to go there? So I definitely find that although they're not showing signs of like, you know, anger or aggression, those things um, have definitely come into play. Yeah. Yeah. They're not coming into session, ripping your toys out and screaming at you. (laughs) The anger can come out in other ways, like cancelling sessions, not agreeing with what you're saying in therapy, not on board with the homework, Mm. that type of anger. Yeah. Would you say like questioning a lot of your skills as well is a really big one? So I've had families in the past be like, well, how many years of experience do you have? Like what, you know, what do you you? know about kids? Yeah. You don't even have any kids. Would you say that that would also be a denial? an anger phase of the cycle? I think it could fall under a few of the stages, but I definitely think so. Like the stage one denial and also stage two, the anger questioning you, saying you're not experienced enough, you don't know what you're talking about, I think can definitely fall under that. Mm. Which it's hard as a young therapist getting asked how old you are. Totally inappropriate, by the way. And if, or if they ask you, oh, when did you graduate? It's really awkward Mm. and it's hard. Yeah. I'm really on the fence about sort of putting that information out there as well. Like even on a staff website, I don't know if it's necessarily, if you need it. I feel like that just gives parents another reason to be like, "Mm, you don't have enough experience. Yeah. Mm. What do you say if someone asks you that? What have you said? I kind of just deflect and change the topic. I say, ah, (laughs) old enough. (laughs) old enough to work here um and then I kind of just deflect it something like you know why do you ask or it kind of just depends on the parent if I feel like I've got a good relationship with them and they're asking for a out of curiosity as opposed to how old are you yeah <laughs> I feel like there's definitely a difference yeah I was but gonna yeah, I usually don't answer I was gonna say the same thing depends because some of my clients parents I have a really good relationship with and we're just chit-chatting but then other parents if they're asking how many years experience do I have yeah it's hard I don't know I wouldn't know what to say no all right stage three cast you want to talk about that one So stage three is all about bargaining which involves a parent looking for answers sometimes talking down or undermining their child's challenges and replacing it with some of those positives. So yeah, they are really great with numbers. So it's okay if they can't interact with anyone or, oh, but, um, you know, he really, really loves playing by himself. Like he is so independent and yes, we are all about like being strengths based and it's not, we definitely sort of should not be working from like that medical impairment based model. I'm not trying to say that that's what we need to focus on, but sometimes I think when parents are in this bargaining stage, they will try to bargain or find a way out on reasons and like how they can cure their child. And they might, these kind of parents might 
sort of do their own research and find alternative treatment approaches that they found on the internet. So, mm. you know, some parents, a really big trend out at the moment, which is grinding my gears, is mouth taping. So, you know, parents might do something like that. They might, what's mouth, mouth taping? taping? Oh my gosh. So it's people who are like mouth breathers. All these influencers have said that you should just turn up worst. <laughs> it's not good. It's really not good. And I all these people are like this. making money off um, you know, special mouth tape because they're like, oh, don't go buy cello tape because it's like got chemicals. So go buy this special mouth tape. I'm it's shocked. So I know. Mouth tape. And people are doing it to their children as well. <gasps> mm. I'm a mouth breather. I need to go see an ENT, but I would never do that to myself. I just can't believe. Oh, God. God. Like I am a big believer in natural and alternative medicine. I use a lot of it at home. Um, I often, depending on what it is, but I often would seek a natural remedy rather than going um, down the medical model. That's just how my family's always worked and that's just my belief. But there are some really bizarre things out there, like super bizarre. And it really makes me question or realise that some parents, when they are going through this cycle, will just honestly try anything. Mm, and everything, yeah. no matter how far-fetched or crazy it may be. Yeah. And as we all know, like disabilities are not curable. But I remember one person was something was they were getting their stool tested for autism to cure autism for something about stool testing. And, you know, like es- essential oils aren't going to make a child talk. No. If you think about the body and how much we know I'm doing like quotation marks. There's so much that we still don't know. Obviously, if there's research behind it and it's, you know, very well evidence-based, great, we'll change our practice and all of that. But for things that are just made up and no one's actually researching it, it is really hard. And it's hard too if a parent comes to you and tells you things that they're doing. I think the difference is like I, yes, am all about like supporting a family to achieve their child's goals and every family and every child is so different. But I think the thing that is really hard is when families or individuals will trust what they read on the internet and they'll trust influencers and they'll trust my auntie's dog, sister's cousin's brother (laughs) said that this worked, so I'm going to do it. And then I think that that then just becomes a cycle of then we as speech pathologists have no ground to stand on because they're going to access this alternative side of things, I think that's where the line gets crossed for me is I'm all about you trying new things. And if that works for you, that's great. But early intervention is also really important and therapy is also really important. And so is, you know, homework at home. And I think that's where that line gets crossed. Is Mm. that what you mean? Like if it works, awesome. You need to see it to believe it, but it's not the be all and end all. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was trying to get across. That's what I was trying to get across, saying it appropriately on a podcast rather than me and you talking and swearing about it. (laughs) I don't swear. (laughs) I mean, I don't either. Okay, stage four, this is enough. But, yes, you will, to summarise that, yes, people will bargain with you about um, about your client. Stage four, this is where a parent can feel 
depressed or go through episodes of depression. And usually the parent can begin to blame themselves, which is very tricky. They think that they did something to cause their child to have a disability. So instead of blaming the world and each other, they blame themselves. Trying to cheer someone up in this stage is very hard. Common sense is usually just thrown out the window and the parent needs to realise on their own that they are not to blame. I think this is the most common stage of the grief cycle that I see parents at. I think it really does depend obviously where you work. If you're working in the early intervention space, you're probably going to see a lot of families at this stage. Some families hide it, I think, for a while. Mm. How sort of when, you know, when they're going through this stage, I've definitely had families um, who are sort of like, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then three months down the track, they're sort of not and it all comes out. And then I've had other families who, you know, you, you might say one thing and then they just burst into tears. Yeah. And I had a mum actually last week, we were doing a parent session. Her child's just been diagnosed with ASD level three. And um, I, I just did my assessment. I was just doing some feedback. We were going through some goals. I'm pulling out like all the strengths and stuff of their child and mum just burst into tears. And that was really hard because I was like, oh my God, did I say something wrong? Like, what what did I do? And she was just like, oh, it's not your fault. She said, I'm just really struggling um, to come to terms that their child has this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's really hard. And all I kind of did was I just sort of like gave her a tissue. I just let her cry it out. And then, you know, we obviously then focused a lot more on the strengths and the things, you know, that yeah. he's really good at that we're going to focus a lot on. What would you say, what stage are they in? They're definitely, I think, in the depression stage. Like I, they've sort of come to terms with the fact of the diagnosis. They've been accessing speech and OT elsewhere for a really long time. They've got all these supports in place. Like they're doing amazing. Yeah. I think it's just each time maybe she has these conversations, I think she's definitely still in the depression stage. I think what you did was professional. Like you obviously can't, even though you want to give them a big cuddle and say, I'm so sorry and all of that, like you still need to keep that professional boundary. So I think definitely what you did was right in saying you just was there, gave her a tissue, waited for her, but then you changed the way that you were going to deliver the rest of the information and you really focused on that strength. So I think that's nice, Cass. Yeah, and it is really hard, I think, not to take some of that on board. I think I just let her know as well that it it is going to take time and we really want to focus on what he's motivated with and what he really enjoys and kind of just helping them through what therapy is going to look like as well. Cause I think for these families, it's like, what does it mean? Like, how are we even going to like help him achieve these goals? So you definitely have to take things really slow with these families, I'd say. Yeah. Should we get into the last stage? Stage five is sort of, I guess, coming out of that roundabout analogy is all about acceptance. Yeah, so you're going right now. You're heading out of the roundabout. All right, that makes sense. So this is the part of the grief cycle that we all wish and hope that our parents can get to. In this phase, the parents really knuckle down and get into the therapy. They accept their child for their strengths and challenges and just see them as who they are. They are really ready to take on board these strategies, implement approaches at home. You know, they're really engaged in therapy. They sit on the floor and do everything that you say. And that's, you know, the stage where you start to think, you know, I finally built rapport with this family and the therapy is really great. I've definitely had parents at this stage of the cycle. Um, You know, I've had mums say to me, oh, 
that's just who he is. You know, I love mm-hmm. him for who he is and um, I want others to love him for who he is as well. What I found really, really challenging is when the mum is at the acceptance phase and the dad is at the denial stage. I find that really hard. Yes, which we probably should have said at the start, parents don't step through the stages together. More often than not, they can be on the two ends of the stage and then they swap. It they yep. can never be lined up, which is really hard because you might have mum come in one session and it's great, everything's moving along, she's saying all the strategies are going in place, they're helping, and then you can the next week dad will come in and he's at the anger stage and it can be a completely different session. Mm. Mm. Just before we move off the stages, usually, and it's really hard, but usually I see a client parent come to this acceptance stage when they're achieving goals when they're starting to talk they're communicating better they're playing with their peers when they start seeing progress then I feel like they're really starting to accept it that's just in my experience I don't know how true that is but it's just with clients that I've had so that could be hard as well especially if your client has lots of difficulties so there's lots of goals So those are the cycles and it's interesting once you're aware of the grief cycle. So when you're interacting with families, you begin to see kind of where they are in the cycle and how it's having a positive or a really negative effect on your therapy and your client's progress. But it's really important to also be aware that if a parent is in stage five, which is acceptance, doesn't mean that they're always going to be in this stage and a parent and all family can just keep going around the cycle as many times. Throughout I life. was about to ask that. Yeah. Interesting. That makes it really challenging as well. So if you think about the early years, your client's starting to achieve their goals, the parents are at acceptance, ready for them to begin school, really feeling positive about it. They begin prep and then they're really struggling, having all these challenges. They're having to have parent-teacher interviews all the time, you know, and there's really all of that external factors, a parent can regress and go back into that denial stage or the anger stage or the depression stage because things aren't running smoothly again. Mm. Like new challenges start to emerge really. Yeah, I think so. And don't take what I'm saying as gospel, but this is what the psychologist said, that they could just keep going around. They could accept something one week and then the next week something happens and they're back at stage one. Yeah. yeah, it is just a process. I think, you know, now that we know the stages, we're aware of them, what do we do as speech pathologists when parents are coming in and when they're going through each of these stages? Yeah, what do we do? <laughs> well, <laughs> the answer is a bit more difficult and it is all based on the family and the individual. However, as I mentioned before, it's not our job as speechies to necessarily treat this grief cycle, but it's kind of what we do and how we interact with the families in the different stages. So what we can do. The first one, and I think it's the biggest one, because we're not psychologists, we don't know what to say. And sometimes if we try and say too much, it could be really damaging or harmful. So listening is probably my biggest tip. Just listen to what the parents say without judgment. And without trying to always feel like you've got an answer or you always need to say something, literally just listening and showing that you're listening is really important. Yeah. And 
If you're an active listener, have you ever spoken to someone and when they're listening, they do different facial expressions because you can kind of guess how they're feeling by what you're saying? Yeah, I feel like I do that. (laughs) Yeah, I do it all the time. But when you listen without judging, you have to really be conscious not to turn your nose up at things or make raise your eyebrows if they say something crazy or make a little sly comment like, oh, haven't heard of that before or something like that. And I think this comes off the back of that bargaining stage and trying natural remedies for things. I had a client who was really, really scared to tell me this natural remedy that they were doing for ADHD. And she was really nervous and I said, oh, it's okay. Like you don't have to tell me. That's totally fine. And she ended up telling me about it and I was just like, oh, that's great. And if you find that that works for your son, then that's really awesome. And then we just kind of moved on with the conversation because what else can you do? I'm not going to turn my nose up. They're already doing it. So, And I felt like then after that she came to me for a lot more things. Mm. Yeah, you kind of open that gate of like I'm going to be here for you no matter what. I'm here to support you. We're going to do this journey together. Yeah. And just off the back of that, obviously if they're doing things that you know are going to be harmful for the client, obviously you would need to say something or report it or something. But for things that aren't harmful, I think it's just nice to listen. Yeah, totally. That's a really good point. Next one. Something else we can do, and I do this a lot, is to find support groups or programs for the parents, particularly if they are more of that sort of like maybe denial phase or depression stage where you feel like they could benefit from some support, Um, referring them to Facebook groups that are very well recommended. We have recommended some before, recommending parents to like, you know, autism workshops to help them understand maybe what autism is or depending on what medical condition their child has as well is really important. So yeah, I think programs and just understanding that their child is not the only one going through this, I think is really powerful for parents. Yeah. Another thing is if you, and I always like to end the session like this, but focus on the client's strengths and always make a really positive comment at the end. Oh, a great thing that Fred did during the session was he did really nice turn taking with us during the game and he didn't become upset when I had a turn. That's really amazing progress. Yeah. I also like to remind clients, uh, families sometimes at where we began. Remember last time when we began therapy and we tried this, Fred really didn't want to share and he got really upset when I wanted to have a turn. Well, today he didn't even become upset and we were able to have a really nice game. That's amazing. I think that's so true, like reminding them of where they started to where they are. Yeah. I've often video my clients, especially my speech clients. And if I show the parents again, if we've made heaps of progress, they literally forget that that's how they used to talk. And they're like, oh, really? It's like, yeah, this is how far we've come. And it's, yeah, nice little reminder. Definitely. I think I even forget sometimes where we start to. The next one that you can do because obviously parents are going to try lots of different things. I like to try and guide parents and families to make informed decisions about their child in therapy rather than saying, yeah, okay, yeah, you try it. 
For example, I had a client who mum was asking about ABA. And so I just kind of gave her the evidence and my understanding of ABA. And I said, like, I really wouldn't recommend it while I'm trying to do a more relationships-based approach because they're completely two ends of the spectrum. So if you know a little bit about something that the parent is wanting to try, or if you don't know anything, to guide them to make an informed decision, you could say something like, you know, there's not really any evidence to suggest that that would be beneficial for your child. You could try this or, you know, what we're doing in therapy is really evidence-based. If we work really hard towards it and just continue the way we're going, there is going to be positive impacts to their therapy. Just trying to guide them a little bit rather than being like, no, or yes. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think it's really important to remember, and this is the conversation that we were having off air before actually, Ash, parents are sort of coming to you sometimes with, they have like no direction. And so it's really easy to get caught up in like all of these avenues and go down rabbit holes and all of this stuff. Um, they're accessing NDIS for the first time and they've got all of these, you know, all this money and they don't really know what to do. And they're really overwhelmed with all of these decisions. And sometimes they just need somebody to say, I'm going to make these decisions for you. This is what I would recommend because it's really easy to get so confused and overwhelmed. And so I think as a professional, it's really important that you're guiding them in those right directions to give them some I guess some like stability and some like certainty as well in their journey. Yeah, that's a nice point, Cass, because I guess if you ever mention something to a doctor, they just tell you straight up no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was listening to the Speechy Side Up podcast with Carrie Eckbert and you would have seen the quote come up on our Instagram recently and it was saying about, you know, as a professional, you're actually doing your client's family a disservice if you're not speaking up, if you don't feel that something's right. Like you said, Ash, when you go to a doctor and you're like, oh, I'm doing this, they're like, are you stupid? Like, why would you do that? Sometimes they're a little bit too blunt, but they will definitely tell you black and white, like, yes, that's a good idea, or no, I would not do that, or you've got heart disease, or you've got cancer. You know, they're very much like, this is what you've got. They don't sugarcoat it. It's the truth. And I think that that's really important as a professional to understand that we also have that professional obligation to tell our clients if we believe something is right or wrong. Well in said. a nice way. In a nice way, yeah. The next one is self-explanatory, but refer to a psychologist, especially if you notice that the family dynamics are completely off, parents are really struggling to even come to therapy, get daily tasks done, which they'll probably tell you. You could probably see them in the session just like not coping. They need to go and speak to a professional, so just get in contact with some of your local psychologists and see if they're taking referrals and definitely mention, you know, I can see that this is really difficult time for you. It would probably be good if you spoke to a psychologist to help you just cope with day-to-day challenges. And lastly, once you know the cycles and you can start to decide which stage a parent may be in, Really use this to guide how you're going to deliver homework or introduce, you know, a new therapy approach or suggest that they need to see another health professional. So, for instance, if they're in stage one and denial, recommending to see another health professional can be so challenging and then they'll get really angry at you because they can't see it. So you may really want to work on laying down the 
foundations to therapy, getting the parents comfortable, being around you and being in that therapy kind of mindset. And then you would slowly introduce the idea of if your client needs to see an OT, seeing an OT or a physio or the psych, whoever it may be, you know, and just mention, oh, I noticed that Fred has some challenges with regulating his emotions and, you know, for a child of his age, maybe they would be able to do it a little bit better. Seeing an occupational therapist would really help Fred do that and, you know, you can get extra funding on your NDIS plan to support you or you could just go have a chat with them and see what they would recommend because I'm not an occupational therapist. I can't, you know, make that recommendation. Yeah, Yeah, you're right because I think I've definitely recommended to parents before um, who have got you know children with quite complex, challenging behaviours and the family dynamic is not working for them, home life is really stressful. I've definitely recommended to families in the past, you know, maybe just thinking about trying to see a child psychologist and it may have taken them six months. They're probably more in that acceptance stage. I've recommended it again and they've actually gone to book in to, you know, to see one or they've actually taken on board my recommendations and then found a psychologist. So I think that's also really important. It's not like they're not listening to you. I think it's just important to understand where they're at and where their priorities are lying sometimes as well in that Mm -hmm. grief cycle. Yeah, totally. So those are just Mm -hmm. some things that we can do and good luck. (laughs) It's hard. It's really challenging. But I think, you know, it's challenging not only for new grads but even experienced health professionals because every parent is going to react and go through the cycle in a different way and at different times that we mentioned earlier and every parent is going to be so different as well. Yeah. Like you can't just – just because you've dealt with someone in the depression stage before doesn't mean that another parent's going to present the same. Yeah. I think just recognize though that you're still learning as a professional as well and to just give yourself a break and a little pat on the back because you are doing a good job. You are listening. You are there for them. So round of applause, everyone. (laughs) Talking about our strengths. I think uni teaches us sort of the basics on how to do the therapy with children with various needs but not necessarily how to navigate grieving parents while you're trying to do therapy while you're trying to manage behaviors while you're trying to scaffold and get 100 trials and um, achieve goals and all of this stuff so there's a lot to remember so take it easy Mm -hmm. it's such a big learning curve However, super important for all health professionals to be aware of. So we really hope that you have enjoyed this episode and are able to take some important pieces of information away and just be aware of this when you are dealing with your next client's parent. Well, thanks so much for listening and we will see you all next week. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you'd like to stay up to date with us, then please give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook at Diary of a New Grad Speechy. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review below. Thanks so much. See you next week.